Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on March 11th, John Rodden on What Would Orwell Say Today? Coming up on the show, AJ Bain, author of the new book White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. AJ, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. Thrilled to be with you today. So Walter White, uh, as you rightly note uh, in the book, not a character from Breaking Bad, but one of America's most important civil rights leaders. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I was giving a talk last night at the Truman Library Institute, and I led my talk with just the whole idea, like, why is it that nobody has heard of Walter White? Um, and, you know, we'll probably answer that uh during this podcast, but if I describe him in a sentence, I would say he was the most important civil rights leader of the first half of the 20th century. I mean, it's, it's interesting because you say right at the very beginning of the book that, you know, in many, many ways, some readers will find comments and events in the book that they they may think that could never have happened in the modern United States. But there are other readers who will find the story all too close to home. And the difference between those two different readers, you say, is exactly what the book is about. Well, that's absolutely true. You know, I came to this topic, you know, the book is about race. And um, there's, frankly, there's a lot of scary things that happen in the book. And, um, you know, I wanted to write a book that it would appeal to two different audiences, because I know that two different audiences are going to come to this book. There's people, frankly, who white people who uh, constantly tell me, constantly, even yesterday, numerous, numerous times that they read this book and they couldn't believe that the stuff that happened in it really happened. And then there are many black readers who say, of course, this stuff happened. This is part of the history of race in America. And, uh, you know, of course, this is part of the knowledge of, you know, what is the black experience? Yeah, and one of the uh, the points that you make uh, early on, one of the things that's interesting about Walter White is that uh, he could, you say, pass as white because his great grandmother um, had, had had six children fathered by a white slave owner, and that's actually one of the really shocking moments in the book. We actually had Ian Dale on last week to talk about a new collection of essays on presidents for the President's Day weekend. That slaveholder was William Henry Harrison, later president of the United. United States. I mean, it's a it's a shock to the system, even saying those words out loud, isn't it? It is, you know, and you have to wonder, I mean, just so so listeners understand, Walter White was a man who grew up in a black family. His parents were born into enslaved families. They were of the last generation of African-Americans who could speak of the slave experience from, you know, uh, from experience. And Walter, at the same time, he went to a, a black school, black church, graduated from all black Atlanta University, but it was skin was white, his hair was blonde, and his eyes were blue. And set, that sort of sets up the trajectory of him living a double life, both as a white man and as a black man. Yeah, there's a, a profile in The New Yorker that you quote uh, that describes him as being reversible. Uh, what, what, what did they mean by that? Well, just in the fact that Walter lived a double life throughout his life. And let me answer the question this way. The first half of the book uh, follows Walter uh, in his odyssey during the 1920s. He gets plucked from obscurity um, in 1917 and moves to New York and to Harlem in 1918, and he begins to live a double life. So... On one side, 
he's living openly as a black man in Harlem, uh, working for the NAACP, and he becomes a key figure in the Harlem uh, Renaissance. So his story illuminates that whole world, black Harlem of the 1920s, um, the NAACP and the rise of the NAACP into this juggernaut, this, this um, you know, force to be reckoned with on a national level. At the same time, Walter White is living as a white man in the South as an undercover investigator, like a crime writer, uh, posing as a white man so that he can infiltrate small communities. He tries to infiltrate the Klu the Ku Klux Klan. And his goal is to um, crack, cr crack criminal cases, basically racist murders and lynchings. And so anytime there's a uh, uh, lynching in the South, Walter would go undercover as a white man, go down there, get the facts, and return to Harlem and write these shocking stories for the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, um, for the New Republic, for the nation, for the New York world. And he became famous for these undercover investigations. So he was living a double life. That's what it meant to be re reversible as a white man and as a black man. Yeah, and that means, as you show in the book, I mean, he exposed his crimes and, and wrote exposés of, of some of the bleakest chapters in American history. Well, that's true. And, you know, he conducted 40 of these undercover investigations of lynchings and, and numerous others of race riots. And I'll, I'll tell you, Richard, one of the things that was a real struggle in writing the book was what do I put in and what do I leave out? Because we're talking about, you know, I don't want to scare away readers, but these, some of these were ritualistic murders in front of crowds larger than some at Major League Baseball games. And yet no one would be charged with a crime in these small communities. I mean, think about that. And that's what Walter was after, to make sure that people were charged with crimes, that justice, you know, that the 14th and 15th Amendments in America meant something. And he would write these reports, barge into the offices of governors and with these documents naming the killers and where they lived and who they were. Um, and yet no one was ever arrested for any of these crimes. He conducted over 40 of these investigations. Yeah, and you, you make you make the point that he was a meticulous note taker. He was assiduous in, in keeping his archives. I mean, I mean, it does it does raise the question, AJ, doesn't it? As a as a historian working on these kind of things on a book over a number of years, the the effect that it actually has on you, kind of researching this kind of, and writing on this kind of thing. Well, it's interesting that you say that, and thank you for that question. I got quoted in the Los Angeles Times in this piece they wrote about white lies that I cried every day. When I wrote this book, and you know, it's kind of true. I'm embarrassed to say. And let me answer that question this way: You know, I when I write these books, um, I'm not trying to tell the reader what happened and why it happened. Only, like I want these books to make the reader feel what the character they're reading about is feeling. And I couldn't write the book without going through that process. And some of the stuff was. Just, I mean, there's a lot of comic reliefs. There's great moments of triumph and pleasure and laughter in Walter White's life. And then there are moments of utter, utter despair. Um, that's the life. He was somewhat of a manic human. And I think that I have to be somewhat of a manic person to have written this book in the first place. I mean, as you say, the other side of his life is the uh, NAACP. And uh, we have to remember that, I mean, that was a small organization at the time when he kind of first joined. It was made up of, of black and white intellectuals and activists, but it, it was not the uh, organization that it would very soon become and which he was partly responsible for creating uh, in terms of its political strength. That's absolutely true. So when he, you know, and that's very important. I think that one of the things that I really enjoyed writing about 
in the early chapters was when Walter gets to the NAACP early in 1918, nobody had heard of this organization. And what this organization was trying to do was very, very important. And um, uh, it's just something like when you're reading the book, you just want these people to succeed. And they do. So when Walter joins, no one had very few people had heard of the NAACP at the beginning of 1918. And when he becomes chief executive of the NAACP in 1930, it's become the most militant, largest, most well-known civil rights organization that had ever existed in American history. And, you know, very much takes place, as you mentioned earlier, in, in the context of the Harlem Renaissance that, I mean, there are, there are so many kind of great figures kind of here, Langston Hughes, Paul Robeson, they're all performing in his apartment. Uh, you point out in the introduction that George Gershwin gave the first, one of the first performances of Rhapsody in Blue uh, on the piano in, in Walter White's apartment. So, you know, he's, he's right there at the centre. He's a Harlem uh, Renaissance celebrity uh, in many ways. Yes. And, and isn't it odd that he could live openly as a celebrity in Harlem, throwing these legendary parties that would draw, you know, the cream of the crop of the artistic, you know, uh, figures emerging in the Harlem Renaissance, but also uh, the, the great avant-garde figures from white America, the poets like Edna St. Vincent Millay. And so the Greenwich Village in Harlem would meet together and drink and smoke all night during Prohibition in Walter's home while Paul Robeson would be singing and George Gershwin would be playing on the piano. These are, it's, it's when you're writing about it and hopefully when you're reading about it, you're like, wow, it would have been fun to be there. And hopefully you get to feel maybe like a little bit of that excitement as if you were there. And and also this constant juxtaposition with uh, between that that life and the other life in the South, and I suppose kind of constantly reminding us of the kind of the different age that we live in in, in terms of social media and and recognition and so on. That it, it was it was possible to live those kind of two separate lives at least at least until he becomes literally too big uh, for that uh, for that secret life. That's true, and you know you have to imagine when he begins this to live this double life. In 1918, the first investigation, he goes down. It's actually his 12th day at the NAACP. He had just joined. He's a very young man. He's 24 years old. And he reads about this, uh, uh, the burning of at the stake of a man named James McElheron, a black man in Estill Springs, Tennessee. And he goes down there and he conducts this investigation. And the more he does this, the more famous he becomes. Um, so He's becoming famous in Harlem as a person who conducts these investigations. There are profiles of him, articles entitled, you know, the uh, I investigate lynchings with Walter's face, on, you know, in the newspaper in New York. But he, before the age of television and camera phones, he could still go down to the South and pose as a white man and get away with it. But each time he did this, he was more and more famous and thusly the investigation was more dangerous because it was more likely that he would be his identity would be found out. And by the by the 1930s, uh, he's chief executive of the NAACP. But he, he makes it the probably I mean probably the most powerful black political organization in the United States to that date. I think we could say he's regularly in the White House. He's meeting FDR. Later, he meets kind of Harry Truman. Kind of by the time we get into the late 40s and, and 50s, he's 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 friendly with Nixon. He's admired uh, by Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, th this this is someone who is is right at the at the pinnacle of political influence. It's true. So the first half of the book 
is about Walter's double life, living in the, as an openly as a black figure and uh, a key figure of the Harlem Renaissance, a novelist and the sort of de facto press agent of the Harlem Renaissance and these investigations he's posing as a white man in the South. But the second half of the book is he realizes that racism in, in America is systemic. And I want to make clear that that term didn't exist at that time, but it does now. But I think people will understand what I'm saying. And so if racism is systemic, he has to go after the systems themselves. And so he launches himself into politics because he realizes that the ballot box is, is the only place that black power can really emerge. Yeah, and by the, by the time he dies in 1955, the New York Times is describing him as the most important American, African-American leader since Booker T. Washington. And imagine, imagine the irony. This is a man with white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. That's what, one of the many, many reasons why he was a very controversial figure. Um, and also we should point out that, you know, uh, specifically in the 30s, the whole movement of civil rights started to split politically. And Walter chose to pursue politics in the very mainstream. And that meant the White House and a white president. Um, and not everybody agreed with the way he wanted to go about it. And we saw the movement splinter and that continued and it's still splintered today. But uh, yes, Eisenhower, Nixon wrote, you know, nice things about him when he died. And you can imagine um, how he got to that place in his life was about maniacal ambition and dedication to, you know, the whole idea of justice in America. And, you know, not without political controversy either. I mean, he criticised Paul Robeson, for example, during the McCarthy era. So he's right in the thick of some of those really controversial issues of the post-war period. Um, that's true. That's true. And, um, you know, a lot of people during the 1930s when, you know, the Depression hit black America harder than it hit white America and people were uh, poor and hungry. And, you know, I explore this sort of the death of the Harlem Renaissance it was a very painful thing to write about. You had all of these brilliant figures who died poor and alcoholic, um, even as Walter continued to rise in, in, the, in the public eye. I mean, it, it it is interesting. I mean, it it comes back to the question that you asked at the at the beginning. This, I mean, this is clearly uh, a figure of huge influence and significance in the uh, in the kind of the mid twentieth century uh, life of the United States. Why why is he so little written about? I mean, it, is it simply that he's he's overshadowed by that generation that comes afterwards? That you know, like Martin Luther King and uh, Junior and, and Malcolm X, or 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 is there something deeper? Do you think? Well, I think what you just said was correct. I really point to two things. Um, and I'm very clear about this in the book because it's a very dramatic thing that happens in Walter's life. Um, he is, the, ironically, politically, the face of Black America. He's the, you know, the most civil rights, famous civil rights leader of his era, and yet he has this white skin. So a lot of people didn't trust him in black America. And, you know, they criticized him. They said he was white and he was just pretending to be black, you know, for because he was so ambitious and he was this big political figure. And um, at the same time, Walter was married to a black woman and he had black children and identified as black, but secretly he was in love with a white woman. And he literally worked himself and drank himself and smoked himself to death, mostly worked himself to death. And late in life, 
when his health began to go down the tubes, he started having heart attacks. He knew he was going to die young-ish. And um, he decided he wanted to die in love. And he left his black wife for a white woman. And here he was, the leader of civil rights in America. The scandal completely shattered his reputation. Um, I think he knew going into it that it would, and he chose that path. Um, and so the final years of his life, he remained ch chief executive of the NAACP, but he was very much a figurehead. He lost all his power. A lot of black America lost trust in him. His own children abandoned him. Uh, his son changed his name because he didn't want to be associated with his father because they were upset, so upset because he left his wife for a white woman. And so that's one of the main reasons why I think that immediately after his death, his reputation had already been destroyed and was lost to history. The other thing is he died in 1955, right before the Montgomery bus boycott and right when television cameras were showing up on the scene. And I think that the new generation of civil rights leaders, of course, people like Martin Luther King Jr., were not at all comfortable having a man with white skin be the foundation of their movement. Yeah, I think the the phrase that you use in the book is uh, not black enough. And you you make the point that technology is actually an important part of this, that the image of not being black enough um, is something that kind of really emerges during the age of television, when people are on television making the, making the case for civil rights. I agree. And, you know, that's, that's a very much a reason why he's not known today. And very much a reason why I hope people read this book, because it, it just strikes me. It's one of the things I say at the beginning, like some of the things you'll find in this book are impossible to believe. To me, that's one of them. How can it be that this figure who was, you know, arguably, I think you'll read the book and you'll agree, the most influential civil rights leader of the first half of the 20th century. Why is his legacy completely lost to us today? And it is interesting the way that uh, that he frames himself. I mean, he he himself says, I, I am white and I am black and those two bind me together. And that's a, that's an interesting construction and, and way in which he, he sees his own life and his own place in society. It's true. And, you know, it's bizarre, but there are numerous points in the book where it, it becomes a public debate. Is this man black or is he not? Um his W.E.B. Du Bois, who, you know, was definitely in his lifetime, the first black Harvard PhD, without a doubt, without question, the most influential black intellectual of his time, put it in print in the crisis magazine, the NAAC magazine, that Walter White was a white man. Um, and Walter always defended his blackness. And at the end of his life, he defined his identity, his racial identity, this. I'll read it to you. I am one of the two in the color of my skin. I am the other in, the, in my spirit and my heart. It is only a love of both which binds the two together in me. I am white and I am black and know that there is no difference. Each casts a shadow and all shadows are dark. And I think what he really meant by that was his goal in life was to erase any color line. It should not have made a difference whether he was white or black. And, you know, I, I guess we have seen uh, more contemporary writers uh, talking about exactly these kind of issues. I remember interviewing Thomas Chatterton Williams, for example, when you when we think back to the 2008 presidential election, comments that Jesse Jackson uh, made about Barack Obama and race. These are, So this is a kind of a theme that runs from Walter White through Barack Obama all the way through to the, to the present day. Well, that's the reason why I think Walter's story is such an interesting window into the whole topic 
of race and skin color in America, because his story brings up all of those questions, um, and not necessarily the answers, because there are no easy answers. Yeah, I'd, and we're, we're actually recording this uh, in, during Black History Month. And so, you know, I wonder what lessons do you think that we can draw from the life of Walter White for today's politics, but also for the writing of history itself? Well, two, th two ways to answer that question. One is, when I started this book years ago, I actually started this book almost 30 years ago, almost 30, because I started thinking about these things and studying these things in my first year of graduate school in New York. But... I think I, de I couldn't anticipate when I really, when this book came out, that it would come out in the environment we were living in today, where we are so racially divided and there's so much anger in our community. Um, I think readers need to, if, I shouldn't say need to read my book, that would be, I, I don't want to say that. I hope they do, because it's important to understand that all the things that we're experiencing today, things like questions of voter suppression, uh, um, police violence, all of this stuff comes from where it's not new. And I think Walter's story sets the foundation for people to understand everything that's going on in a way that no other figure in American history could. And it, it it is interesting as well because as you as you say there's a there's a lot of personal despair in the book uh, in his story there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, really bleak incidents that take place horrors uh, that you recount uh, in the book but there's also a kind of an optimism about the book the last words that uh, he ever writes you quote to him uh, saying are oh, we are on our way and I I just wonder you know that kind of optimism about race seems to be one of his marks. Um, what do you think that that says to us? And, and I guess, are you still confident that we're on our way? I am confident. I think that um, things like love and hate and uh, these things, political uh, upheaval, these things, just like the economy, things come and things go in waves. You know, I've written a lot about Harry Truman. And, and one of the things I really admired about Truman is he, he always say that history comes in cycles. There's nothing really new going on. Um, but the thing I, I, I can point out is in Walter's life, he was as optimistic as he was ambitious. This was a man who, let's say he had his faults. He was highly, highly ambitious, manipulative, but his goal in life never wavered. And that was justice in America, no matter whether you're white or black. And when you follow the trajectory of his life, the world that he lived in as a child, when he witnessed, you know, the Atlanta race riot in 1906, he was 12 years old. He saw 12 men killed. Um, living through the Jim Crow era, uh, when black people were not allowed to vote, and then working his whole life toward this goal of erasing the color line. And when he died in 1955, the progress that he saw in his life, despite all the horrors, is tremendous. And I hope that that's a mes message that uh, readers can take away. So the book is White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. It's written by my guest, A.J. Baim, and published by Mariner Books. But for now, A.J., congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Richard, thank you ha for having me. Thank you very much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusek. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>